On Tuesday, May 19th, Oregonians will make their choice in this primary season. In Portland, four of the five city council races will be decided, including the mayor's seat. Four out of the five votes on city council up at the same time. Today, we're going to hear from candidate for city council, former mayor Sam Adams, candidate for seat four. Sam grew up in Newport, Oregon, graduated from the University of Oregon, familiar face at City Hall, having served as former mayor, Vera Cass's campaign manager, then chief of staff, as well as city commissioner and then mayor. Moved away. Now he is back and he is in the studio. Welcome to X-Ray, Sam. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Who are you and why are you running? Well, I grew up in uh, Newport, Oregon, uh, and I remember delivering the newspapers for the Oregonian and the Oregon Journal. Uh, and being a gay kid didn't feel exactly safe or welcome yeah. in my community or my family. But reading those papers and sort of learning about this big city, what seemed to me pretty far away, uh, was a place that I really wanted to get to because it seemed like a place where I could be more of my true self. And that's really the love I have for this city. When I got to work here full time, uh, I took the campaign manager job for Vera Katz. Uh, you know, the, the city has, has been great to me and, and has given me so, so many opportunities. And so that's why I love this place. And that sort of love and devotion has increased based on, you know, in my past job as director of the U.S. program for World Resources Institute, which is one of the larger environmental think tanks fighting climate change around the world with nine country offices. I was in charge of the what is now the Banana Republic called the United States of America when it comes to climate change. But I had the opportunity to travel to cities all over the world. Uh, never thought I would, and, and around the United States, and and saw, and of course was comparing Portland to to these other cities, and and what are they doing about homelessness, and compared to what uh, Portland is doing about homelessness, and a whole host of others, transportation, climate action, those kinds of things. So when I came back to Portland in May, um, you know, I'd been concerned. Uh, keeping track of things from D.C., coming back to take care of some sick family members, uh, though pretty quick trips. But when I came back from D.C. to Portland, um, you know, that concern from afar really turned into alarm, seeing things up close. Did you regret not fighting it out, sticking and running again? I'm sure you had moments of second thoughts. You mean for— uh, For a second term. Uh, you know, it—, it you know, I ended the term with a 54% approval rating, which, you know, was... Which suggested you might have been able to win re-election. I mean, my, my take then was that, and I do, I know your time is limited, but I do want to get into this stuff here and really appreciate you taking this time. I've been wanting to talk even not on the air for a while. And, and by the way, welcome back. Like you're a person, like, I don't know who should be the next city councilor in this position. I don't know the best way for you to serve the city, but I deeply appreciate your commitment to the city. I think it's real. I think you actually care about what's going on in our town and you put a huge portion of your life to it. Sure. And, and I think people should, I appreciate that person. Well, I appreciate that. But when I came back and I, you know, you know, I saw 
for myself, felt for myself that, that things were significantly going in the wrong direction for Portland. And, you know, I think it's between 35 and 40, only 35, 40 percent of Portlanders think things are going in the right direction. When I left office, that was 60 percent of Portlanders after going through the great horrible recession thought 60 percent still thought the city was going in the right direction. So that combined with the sense that I feel from Port- a lot of Portlanders that the challenges are getting ahead of us and that the ties to City Hall people's connection and relationship to City Hall is frayed and broke. There's a need and you, you can still play. There's a need and there's still stuff you can do. Yeah, I come back, you know, as a uh, with all of I've I've learned from around the world as, you know, a, a fresh thinking, uh, experienced per, uh, person devoted to local city civic life. Yeah. The uh, what are you proudest of in your terms as mayor and city councilor? Well, I think that you know when I was uh, mayor. Uh, with the worst recession since the Great Depression, um, we cut— Not your fault. Well, I would—I think there's some folks at Lehman Brothers and Wall Street that deserve <laughs> the bulk of that. I'm not and, saying Portland Mayor isn't important. I'm yeah. just saying probably not your fault. Yeah, no, thank you for that. Uh, you know, so we really had to cut the hell out of the budget, but then we also wanted to support the folks that are being hit hardest— by the recession. So we did things like, you know, investing over $11 million to help people stay in their homes, to increase services for those that were experiencing homelessness, um, and a bunch of other, supporting a bunch of other community-based services that that were being really hit with, uh, you know, requests for service like never before. But we also did innovative things like fast track, um, you know, three to five years worth of capital spending in the bureaus, the money was already there for projects uh, to be done in, a, in about a year and a half, yeah. which helped the local contractor community and those employed by it um, have work. And we as a city saved money and not having, you know, the pain, the inflation rate that would have been over three to five years. So we did a lot of innovative things. The city's first economic development strategy that was really focused around equitable prosperity uh, in 16 years. Um, you know, I pitched Portland's goods and services all over the world uh, and with some success doing it differently than other mayors had done, like with Columbia Green, um, when, you know, when Canada, uh, Canada Air opened their first like Canada flight. Air. It makes Canada more sense. Air. It makes the Canadian make more sense rather than just Canada. So we took a bunch of employees uh, to uh, uh, to Toronto and I used my little cachet as the mayor of Portland to get into CEOs of major uh, building developers who yeah. are still developing buildings there, unlike here. And Columbia Green is a, was a great local startup, female-owned startup that does eco-roofs. Um, and she got her first contract in Canada for that, for a large uh, facility, and just kept rolling. That's the kind of thing. And then that money flows back to the city of Portland because she's headquartered here and her business has expanded. What were the missed opportunities? And, and some of it had to drive you nuts, okay? And I will say, and I don't know how, if we're going to be able to get into all this, like when you were mayor, I was ticked at you over East Portland stuff. As I started getting more into it, but I didn't decide to run until after you decided not to run again. In fact, what I thought you ought to do was put yourself up either for re-election or offer to uh, offer to resign and or offer to put up a uh, a removal of yourself, which I thought you would win, right? Because when I looked at it, I thought you were better than the other candidates running, and I thought a lot of the critiques of you as a mayor were unfair and inaccurate. And I want to go into a couple of those. And I, I remember a conversation with Randy Leonard. Now. 
consider that source who's a close ally of yours in city council, who said to me, he thought you had a chance to be one of the great mayors that this city had ever had. And he thinks that some of the stuff you did put you in the class among the best things that any, any mayor in the city had ever been. Uh, and I, and I want to give due for that. It must have driven you nuts over eight years to look back occasionally, right, at what was happening or not happening in the city. What do you think some of the biggest opportunities were in, that were missed in the last two terms by the last couple of mayors? Um, and maybe well, you don't want to whack them. Maybe you don't want to whack them, but well, I at least am curious. It's, it's, it's just observations. I'm not uh, – so, I mean uh, – when we went from one of the worst play, one of the worst cities hit by the Great Recession to, and we worked hard at trying to turn things around. Yeah, uh, you know where nothing was getting built because it was a real estate recession among other things. And, you know, we had that half-finished tower downtown and, and worked hard to not have a couple of half-finished towers in South Waterfront for affordable housing. Um, but as the economy began to come back and really pick up steam, um, I think earlier intervention to prevent gentrification yeah. would have been warranted. Um, and, you know, when uh, Mayor Hales tried to I, – I changed the Portland Development Commission now called Prosper Portland into an equity-focused job creation organization yeah. from a developer development sort of um, focus. And uh, so when the economy came roaring back and all the development Which is a big deal, right, happening, the, the critiques of PDC for a long time, and there's still critiques of PDC, the critiques of PDC for a long time is, hey, only the only the rich, rich old white guys are in yep. on the joke. And I wanted, and a bunch of us wanted that change. So when it came roaring back and then Mayor Hales tried to turn PDC back into a development commission, a renewal, physical renewal building development commission, I think that really missed the opportunity for um, dealing with uh, some of the, the, the gentrification that has happened in the city. Um, I think on transportation, um, you know, I was obsessed with safety. Um, and even though transportation, I had to cut the budget every each of the eight years that I had it for first declining proceeds on ga- on the state allocation of gas taxes. I forget because you you did transportation as city councilor, not only as mayor. Yeah, so we had to cut budgets because people were driving gas prices were higher. People were driving more fuel efficient cars, and then the recession where people were just not driving as much. So we were cutting through that whole thing. So I prioritize safety. And you talk about East Portland, um, you know, the the sidewalks, the bike routes, the new signals, you know, everything I could invest in East Portland that had the least amount of infrastructure, those kinds of transportation infrastructure, I did. I also started um, the city looking at the top 25 most dangerous places in the transportation system. Um, and also having annual transportation safety those. summits. I remember those. That's the city part of has, into this mess. I saw the stickers of those dangerous yeah. places and saw how many of them were east of Mount Tabor. And, and, and the city has sort of walked away from safety, has walked away from prioritizing. Instead of, in it, the, before I had transportation, they would say 82nd Avenue is a dangerous street as you know, or 122nd Avenue is a dangerous street. Treating it as static. It's just a problem. That's just how it's going to be. So we broke that down and said, okay, along those dangerous streets, what is the most dangerous part? And let's focus on those. And we did that all around the city, along with annual transportation summits. And now the city doesn't have that kind of focus on safety anymore. anymore. And I think it's it shows up in, the, uh, in terms of we had one of the highest pedestrian 
you know. Yeah, Vision Zero hit, right? we've seen instead, we've seen a, an increase, in, well, and, and a recent on, increase. And on Vision Zero, which I think is the right policy, it's not a marketing yeah. endeavor. People see Vision Zero, they think, is it time to get my eyes checked or whatever? So when, and I don't mean to be flip about it because people's lives are at stake, but when I had it, it was, we looked at what kind of marketing campaign would re- reduce uh, deaths and injuries, and in 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 Nordic country, it's BNB seen. You know, it's like get eye contact. You know, before you feel confident of crossing the street, whether you're a biker, a pedestrian, or driving an automobile. So I just um, I I am very con- I'm always been very vigilant around life and safety issues and in transportation. Um, you know, more so than. Uh, no more than any place else. Also with, you know, police reform, you know, I, I, on merit, I, you know, made more disciplinary and terminations than other mayors or police commissioners in modern times. But at the same time, uh, with Randy Leonard, we created the city's first dedicated training facility. So it's like this, yeah, you know, you, know, you got to help make sure that our police are well-trained. We had some of the most diverse recruiting classes because we worked really hard at that. Uh, for new recruits. So, you know, there's, uh, and now, you know, in terms of, of police, uh, we invited the, you know, the federal government into under a consent decree so that um, we would make lasting changes in how the police bureau dealt with mentally ill people or folks perceived as mentally ill. You know, those are, those are some of the things we worked on that benefited the city. There's right now the biggest issue is of course houselessness and affordable housing and on that you know i think there are things that we can do there are tangible things this for me this race is not about the what it's about the how it's about how are you going to address these folks share a lot of the same priorities nobody's going to say i'm in favor of homelessness i'm in favor of people dying on sidewalks because they don't have sidewalks i'm in favor of police you know police brutality or mistakes depending on let me give you you two tangible examples and i'll be coming out with a uh a more whole, even more holistic sort of uh, strategy on what I would do about uh, houselessness and and affordable housing, and I would like to be appointed uh, as the commissioner working on that issue. And I think it should be the f- near full time job of someone on the city council to work with the mayor and the rest of the council and the region and all the other players. It is that big of an issue. But I'll give you three ideas. One, it's 2015 when the when the city city government declared an emer- emergency on homelessness and affordable housing, if uh, which was the right thing to do. And the first thing I would have done, and the first thing I will try to do, I will do if I'm elected is, where's the group, where's the annual, or sorry, not even annual, what am I saying? Where's the weekly meeting of all the bureaus working on this issue? Um, an inherent weakness of the commission former government is everybody works in silos. But if you can bring those silos together to focus on an issue and war you know, war room is not the right word I would use because it's not a war. I would say it's a rapid response and planning, expediting, where we're, where the bureaus are all working together on this issue. And I would chair it or I, whoever would be appointed as in charge of homelessness would chair it. And we would start getting the city's act together. We can't be a good partner with Multnomah County if we're not even organized ourselves as a city. Uh, and it is a challenge, but it's a challenge of this former government that you can make serious headway on. Another issue, the Portland bo- uh, the Portland housing bond measure came in and they've exceeded the number of units. Um, 
uh, thanks to the change in the Constitution that allowed you to blend money that you couldn't before. So they've come in with about 1,400, 1,500 units, which is great. But the per one, by one estimate, the per cost per unit is $310,000. Pretty expensive. We're not going to get anywhere near meeting our goals if per unit is, so we spent $3.1 million, million, we've done 10. We spent $30 million, we've done 100. One of the hot, um, one of the hot new sort of housing types is co-housing. Yeah. And uh, so that's one, keep that in mind. The second- It costs you $400,000, but all of a sudden you've built something that can house four people, right? With a common central area, like, heck- I'm thinking 12. Harvard College, 12 people in a common unit. Yep. And then how much does that kind of unit cost? Ballpark. Uh, well, per like a million dollars per, per, per whole unit, so a hundred thousand well, dollars per, per person. Per person housed. Yeah. You know, there are some estimates that you can get it for you know one hundred and twenty-five. Yeah. So you're saving a lot of money, doubling potentially. Right. Now that doesn't work for everybody that's looking for shelter, looking for home. Uh, what but it might I would work for twelve people. Well, it would more than that. I would lean the entire system into peer to peer. You know, I would lean the entire system into people that have recovered or survived homelessness yeah. and gone on to get the skills, training, and education. If you've ever been through, uh, like many members of my family have substance abuse programs and they have family day, the counselors there are overwhelmingly people that got trained as counselors but went through recovery first. Yeah. Um, that kind of credibility, that kind of lived experience should be guiding this entire effort. So... I think a best practice is that I've seen in other communities around the world is you do that co-housing, you can create intentional communities. Um, in some places, they have uh, families with children and they want to do co-parenting, you know, with all the children. You have peer-to-peer -peer resources that can live there as well. These are not shelters. These can be permanent housing. Um, why would we mix a group of folks that were struggling with, let's say, uh, a mental illness in with a group that is struggling with substance abuse? Maybe that makes sense, maybe not. But if we were to legalize this co-housing in residential, um, especially along busy streets, which is where I think it can be handled by the existing system, uh, along transit corridors, um, and, and not just for those that are suffering homelessness, just build a lot of this stuff. We can get people into ownership positions and sort of a condo basis. We can get people into rental at a much lower rate. That's something tangible we can do. And right now the city code won't allow that, what I just described. And, you know, as we look at the residential infill project, I think legalizing those along transit streets and busy streets is the right thing to do on affordability. The other thing I would do is we have about 100 people. It's, it's uh, again, I'm slightly obsessed about safety and, and saving lives. We have 100 people that die in the streets every year. Um, but if you've ever shadowed someone that is without a phone trying to get access to healthcare, low-cost healthcare, it's a torturous, torturous process. And so, you know, you've got to go downtown. Drop-ins are appointments are tough to get because they're overwhelmed. So you have to go downtown. Let's say if you're in Kenton, uh, where I hang out, that's seven miles. You have to find your way downtown. If you don't have money, you risk getting a ticket, you know, on the yellow line. You won't get on a bus if you don't have money. Um, to get an appointment, then you go back, then you have to go back to your appointment. When you make your appointment, if you have tests, you have to come back, get the test results. You know, it's just this, it's, it's not realistic, uh, for people that are not facing such challenges as chronic houselessness, much less 
for any of us. So I want to legalize street medicine more. I've seen it around the world where doctors in the field can be part of wired up to the healthcare system, are authorized to get reimbursed from the Oregon Health Plan. So there's a, a source of money there and that they can uh, test, diagnose, and dispense. And in a lot of countries, they lead in terms of the dispensing into the uh, extra uh, timed release. Um, so you don't have to give them a bottle if that's not going to be useful in a situation, but you can give them extended release medicine and go back to see them. A critique of some homeless services is that while the more the, the nicer you are to people who are experiencing houselessness, well, the more likely it is that they will gravitate towards the street so they can get to these services. Your argument, presumably, maybe with data, is no, if you actually had street medicine, it would help people get themselves together so that they could take access, uh, get access to the housing opportunities that are there, job opportunities that might be there, treatment that they need. Exactly. And and so my mine is, I mean, I was on the council in 2005 when we set the policy for the city that it would be housing first. And that's the gold standard and that's the right way to go. But while we're busy figuring it out, I want to save lives. And I think more legal street medicine where doctors can legally prescribe, you know, that are certified clinicians can leg legally prescribe on the, uh, on the street uh, can save lives. And we've got to save lives and reduce injury and harm. I want to get personal. If, if you don't win this race, it's not going to be because people don't think you know the city, understand how it operates. If you don't win this race, it's not going to be because uh, people don't think you can get anything done uh, or because you don't care about this city. And when I say personal, I mean about me, not just you. So I didn't succeed you. I lost. And I didn't, I didn't lose because uh, people didn't think I was smart. I don't think I lost because people didn't think I cared about the city. I lost because there were people who wondered if I was a good person. And that was deeply painful, right? hard to deal with because I lived much of my life to try to help other people in the hopes that I could someday become a good person. It was deeply, deeply painful. And I remember talking to a good friend of mine and I was telling him what was, you know, was going on. And I was telling him all the ways that I was getting hosed and all the ways that, well, it wasn't exactly like that. And, 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 he, and he said, Jeff, I'm, I'm less concerned about, I'm less interested in what, what mistakes you've done in your life or the, the various vagaries and details and vicissitudes of that. I'm more interested about who you've been since, who, are, who you are now and what you're going to do next and how you're going to develop yourself. And that was why it's still hard to address, right? Still sort of, what are the ways as you've stepped away now? What are the, what are the ways that you think you're a different human being? And maybe you're not, right? Maybe you're like, no, I was awesome then and I'm awesome now. Or maybe I was flawed then I'm flawed now. What are the ways that you have tried to work on yourself to be the kind of leader that you want to be that you think the city needs? Well, first off, anything that uh, any, every candidate brings their humanity into these races. Um, I grew up in the sort of profession. I grew up in the spotlight and I chose to, and that was uh, my choice. Um, you know, lying about a relationship with an adult um, was dumb, but it was thoroughly investigated and no, you know, legal wrongdoing was found. Um, and I said I would work hard to make sure that, you know, it didn't affect my agenda, which I ran on a very aggressive agenda and delivered on most of it. Um, and ended the term with a 54% approval rating, which at that time was, was very high. So uh, it's better than the president. I mean, the president's in the 40s. Uh, so it, you know, it, I think Portlanders are very fair minded about those things. Um, but yeah, that was a stupid but not illegal thing to do. 
Um, and of course you grow from that, you know, for me, it was also mortifying, humbling, um, to have done that, um, and learned, uh, you know, that, that, you know, I'm not, that I have to take care of myself, you know, in that particular case, I was coming off, um, a partner of, you know, 11 years had broken up with me and, and it was a low point for me. I'd, I'd never been in the spotlight, although I'd grown up in the spotlight, I'd never been in that sort of bright of spotlight um, as a city commissioner and was, a, a, you know, acclimating to that. So I learned through the process of going through uh, admitting a mistake, uh, you become a humbler person, you rely on others more, less sure of yourself, uh, I think in really useful ways. I'd always been sort of team-oriented, but boy, I really had to be team-oriented, and I found it incredibly gratifying. Um, and uh, take care of myself as a person, because you, you know, that's the that's what you bring to every moment of every situation you're in is is sort of how healthy you are, and you know, are you taking yourself good care of yourself and I've never been great at that, but uh, since I've been away and come back, I think I'm much better at that now. I also seen, you know, just a deeper appreciation of the life I've had when I've seen around the world people that are just living in, you know, abjectly horrible conditions and everyone I, you know. It can make you more grateful. Absolutely. To, to recognize, as, as painful as it might be, to mm -hmm. be toppled from a from a high position, we realize how much better that we have it. There's yeah. so many people in the world. Absolutely. So I think it made me a much better person. I've certainly learned and and grown from it. Without repeating that, are there any, what were the most valid critiques of you as a mayor? Right to the extent even more valid. And as you look at like it, it, that, you deal with with either mm. well, that's just who I am, and I have a, I have a guy on our board of directors who advised me. He said, "Listen, at some point, leaders are going to be who they are, and mm -hmm. the, what they need to do is hire around themselves to address some of their you know blind spots and weaknesses." And and you know, people can get a little better, but that's kind of what are the things you recognize that you need to hire for, or that you that you work on yourself to address? That is, you know, not all of us get a hundred percent at every class. Uh, well, there's a lot, um, of course. Um, you know, the I, I think that, you know, when, when you grow up, you know, when I grew up, it was still illegal to be gay yeah. in Portland, uh, sorry, in Oregon and in Newport, at least to show, do any act on any of that. And, and that kind of stays with you, that sense of that you're very, very imperfect person. You know, and, and that's what, you know, when you're beat up as a kid and called names, you're faced with, the, with that reality. Uh, and, you know, kids can always be mean, but uh, when you live in a small town and, you know, it's it's more magnified. Um, so you take that with you, sort of that, that hurt and that shame. And uh, I would say since I've been gone, especially, uh, it's been great to to as much as I miss Portland, it was also great to be out of Portland in the sense that 
nobody knew who I was. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, I worked with... No, if you'd say your name was Sam Adams, they'd joke about the name of the beer. They right, ask you know, and I worked with people that had, you know, much more higher degree academic uh, performance. I was the practitioner and they were more of the uh, academic professionals. And that is both humbling and invigorating. So I think, you know, I've learned to be more uh, vulnerable with my friends and more vulnerable in public. Like, I don't, I'm not, you, you'll hear, I'm not comfortable talking about in great detail things that I went through as a kid. Yeah. I was brought up, you know, just sort of gut it out and move on. Um, but when you do that, you you sort of release that sort of stuff that you that I've been carrying around since I was a kid. So um, I've had counseling over the years, which has been... Um, I found incredibly, incredibly helpful to also sort of. Have you deal still with been things. doing? Have you been doing more of that? Any less of that? Any of it during the last eight years? Last five years? I did it when I was mayor, um, yeah. and I did it uh, uh, after being mayor. Yeah, yeah. yeah me too. The uh, state of the media. So we started this organization. Not in critique of any particular person or particular mm-hmm. organization, but but seeing a need to engage more voices in the common discussion. How would you characterize, if you want to characterize, the state of the media? And watching the uh, and as I've watched mayors, we have this you know string of one-term mayors, mm-hmm. and you know it's something to do with people's desire to do it longer, something to do with their performance, something to do with wanting to run again or not, and probably something also to do with the media landscape. Anything you would say about the media landscape or how people should understand it? It's winnowed away. Um, and in its winnowing, uh, we are certainly not, that's, we're not well served as a city, not just in terms of government, but also, uh, in terms of, of scrutiny on business. You know, I mean, the fact that, that, you know, we, and I'm, I mean, the, the, the number of reporters working on local issues, as you know, is just gone way down. I was meeting last night, last night, talking about what would it take for us to do actual more honest goodness journalism. Right. And and this is a number I didn't remember if I ever knew it. And it said at the time that the Oregonian uh, took over pieces of the Oregon Journal, I think that was the timeline, there were 400 people in the Oregonian newsroom, 400 people in the Oregonian newsroom. Now they're not, you know, about maybe 250, 275 of them are reporters that included photographers, designers, everything else. Uh, and now what I'm told is maybe there's 40. It's an entirely different landscape. So it's not like there, there hasn't been a 10% cut. There hasn't been a 30% cut. Mm-hmm. It's an enormous it change. Is. What are, and thinking about also moving forward uh, or in the vein of moving forward. And I've got, I do have to ask about this as well. There's this, as soon as I, as soon as I saw the article with you, you know, talking to media members and I saw, uh, and I saw the former uh, publisher of, of Just Out, I think it was, post uh, something on Facebook. It's like, oh, looks like Sam might do something. And I was hearing from friends, oh, I think Sam might do something. And I, along with everybody else, was surprised that you uh, decided to run not in the, in the seat with 172 people running for it, but in the seat with fewer people running for it, but including an incumbent. And also deciding not to run against the sitting mayor. And I know, I've heard you say, well, you know, nobody has a right to a second term. You can run for any seat. I totally get that. What I'm wondering about is the process of that decision. I assume what was happening is you were calling around and saying, I got I got energy, I got fuel, I got a knowledge and love for this city, I want to do something, and I'm looking to re-engage, and you're getting advice from folks, and you're talking to people. And my guess is you start 
seeing the landscape that your best crack might be winning at that seat. Was it more, were you hearing more critiques about Chloe? Were you more seeing that it would be hard to beat, uh, to beat Ted Wheeler? Were you just seeing it was going to be too crowded in the other seat? Anything else about that process of mm-hmm. making the decision to choose to run now and for this particular seat? Well, I didn't come back with the intention of running, yeah. but when I saw sort of the state of things and the lack of action out of the city council as a whole, um, and that we're getting overwhelmed with challenges, that all concerned me. But what really prompted me to to make this move was this sort of resignation setting in that, well, maybe we can't make great strides on homelessness and houselessness and affordable housing. Maybe we just have to accept this and you lose that. And that's Portland's sort of secret sauce is, is the community's high expectations for itself. When you lose that, you lose what I think is one of the core unique differences between Portland and a lot of other big cities. And when I also saw from my travels that there are things we could be doing, tangible things we could be doing, cost-effective things that we could be doing, uh, and I wasn't, I wasn't seeing those sort of, I wasn't seeing them being uh, put out there as as ideas and options. You know, that's what motiva- motivated me to run is that growing sense of resignation that was, and, you know, whether I win or lose, I want to contribute to, yes, we can, really, really, we can uh, better get on top of these issues. That's, that's what this has got to be about. And so this campaign for me, like I said before, is about the how. I'm sick of, I've always been sick of candidates who talked about only the what, and so I think I have something to to uh, to contribute there. I don't some know of all, that's kind of obvious. Yeah, I, I don't have all the answers. I don't have you know. I'm going to throw. I'm throwing out ideas like I did today and on other things um, uh, that I think can make a difference. But as always with me, it's a beginning point of the discussion. If someone's got a better idea, I love it. But I'm going to throw it out there to start that conversation. There is warmth for you in my household. That includes me, and I and it. And we haven't known each other all that well, right? But I find myself feeling very warm to you. Like in, like when I was running, it's like, wow, good for that guy doing something, right? Like like warmth for you. And I and and I think it's partly because you have been kind of a child of our city, right? You've been you've been sort of a person of the city. I think there's probably warmth for you in other households as well. Uh, and the uh, and also because the more I learn, the more I uh, realize how hard of work some of this stuff is. Uh, and and also going through my own process of humility, et cetera. Uh, I watched when Chloe Udaly ran against Steve Novick and her talking about, hey, we need to do something about housing was awesome. I think there were legitimate concerns about, you know, the, 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 I, but I don't think Steve lost because of like meetings with Uber or his like connections with power. I think one of the reasons was people were piling on for him pushing in a street fee, which was something that you know and I know that various labor organizations were asking for for years and during candidate interviews lots I of people, tried I tried to get one done and couldn't get the votes on council It's a hard thing right yeah. and so I I am worried that well there I think there can be critiques of Steve I think that some of the reason he could get beat was because of something he did that showed courage not its lack that showed intelligence that showed forward moving not its absence 
and that and that the candidates against him benefit from that for some degree. So I had this sort of mixed feeling about Cloy running against Steve. It's like, hell yeah, this, this housing advocate, that's awesome. And then it's like, wait a minute, is this the kind of thing we want to punish? Do we want to use the opportunities like this to punish people who are in elected office who do something really hard? So I have these mixed feelings. Similarly now, right? I see him like, hell yeah, somebody who loves the city, who's got deep talent and skill, somebody who does not think this is just a casual avocation that one moves from being a reality TV host to think one can be an executive in a public, in the public sector and do a good job at it, right? Like, like, and warmth and gratitude and even admiration, I will say. And then also, but wait a minute, is one of the reasons that Chloe seems vulnerable because she is pushing against some of the powers that be on big transportation projects because she's pushing against some of the developers on stuff. Is it just about, is it just a competence question? Is it just a how question? Or is it also because some of the good stuff she is doing is making her vulnerable? Some of the neat, I, I watched as Mary Nolan ran against uh, Amanda Fritz. I had some of these same mixed feelings. Mary Nolan's a friend, but like, yeah, but it's some of the reasons that she thinks there's an opportunity to be an Amanda Fritz because Amanda Fritz isn't fully controlled by some of the powerful interests. Is there, do you worry at all that, that running Against that defeating Chloe sends a bad sets a bad precedent or, or sends a bad signal to what we stand for as a city or the kind of politician we ought to have. Um, n- no. <laughs> <laughs> if you said yes, I was no, and and uh, I'm not running against Chloe per se. Yeah. Um, you know, we had our endorsement interviews with Portland Business Alliance, with uh, Portland Metropolitan Area Realtors, with. Uh, Home Builders Association, and I told them I also I support rent control. In fact, I think there are loopholes in in the law that need to be closed, like the fact you can still um, evict someone evict someone without cause in the first year. You know, those are loopholes that need to be uh, need to be changed. Um, and and I worked with the council uh, of tenants on and promoted all their top priorities when I was in office. And so when the city started taking off, it included gentrification and and housing costs. Rent control is absolutely the right thing to to put on the books at that time. So, but. Being a commissioner means you also have to address other issues. Yeah. You know, f- the other side of that particular issue of affordable housing is we have to build 44,000 or or see realized 44,000 units of housing in like the next eight to nine years. Or the underlying cost of rental housing and uh, ownership housing will continue to skyrocket. So I, I as mayor, I... We weren't building anything around the country. Um, and so, but as a commissioner now, you know, it's 44 by 28. You know, we need 44,000 units of housing on the market by, you know, 2028. And we need to bring together in a transparent, open process that's evidence-based. Sorry to get wonky on you here, listeners. This is, this. do not and, be afraid. And uh, this is a time to get nerdy. People can get their three minutes a night on the TV news. This is where we should go as deep as you want to get. Need, we need the, the most suspicious, uh, you know, renter advocates at the table. We need um, outside investors, since a lot of the money from, for the housing comes from outside investors that can choose to put their money anywhere in the United States. Um, we're going to have to bring in billions of dollars, figure out how to get billions of dollars in private sector funding for affordable housing. 
And that means, and we need a housing strategy for the city. I tried to get one going um, when I was commissioner, and then the recession came, and it was like, what are we talking about? So your argument is it's not enough to care about the housing issue. you got to be able to execute, and you think you can execute better. you got to increase the supply. And right now, people are rightfully suspicious of developers, you know, who oftentimes are funded by money outside the city, by construction companies at times that aren't often, even often time. yeah aren't even headquartered here so they're just yeah. extracting money out of the housing market yep. i think there's a better way but we got to bring everyone together and agree on what success looks like and be realistic about what it takes to build 44 units of housing and my goal would be a whole bunch of ready to build places in the city um, that right now there's land around the city that people will not invest in to build housing on, affordable housing, much less. Why is that? There's a lot of indications right now that the money on housing is going just outside the city. So they get the benefits of being close to the city, especially on transit lines, but they're not building in the city. Why is that? Is there something there? It's got to be, I want to be able to show to ourselves and the public, what's the return on investment someone is making on a particular project without any subsidy, but still gets a certain amount of green lighting from us uh, to move forward so that they choose to build that here and not in Beaverton or worse here or not in Salt Lake. So we got to attract a bunch of money around here, but we've got to do it in a transparent way. We've got to say, you know, you get a, a decent return on this project. But if you get more than that, then we get some. We get of that. a cut of the deal. We get a cut of the deal to make other projects no, affordable. It's, it's insightful because I'll make the somewhat clumsy analogy to stadiums. But the best analysis I've heard about public stadiums was that uh, said to me by someone who actually would probably be described as a neoliberal uh, politician, but somebody you know economically conservative to some degree. But he said the challenge with the stadium deals is that they ask us to. Uh, privatize the benefit, but socialize the costs, right? And if we can try to make public some of those benefits, that's a neat thing too. Uh, transportation, you want to do transportation again. Uh, or actually, you did transportation for eight years, excuse me. You don't know if you want to, trans- you know you want to do housing. Yeah, uh, homelessness and housing. The, uh, But especially homelessness. One of the things that I think, and so I, we should ask about that before we go away also. But one of the way, reasons I think that Chloe is vulnerable, some of the reasons I think that some powerful interests want to beat her, is because she is skeptical about I-5 expansion. And that might indicate she's skeptical about the zombie version of the Columbia River Crossing, and which will dedicate us to being highway builders, to putting most of our regional and state uh, transportation dollars into highway expansions. Uh, and I know you had to be in the thicket of that, right? And had conflicting feelings about it. Ended up voting in favors and stuff, trying to take away some lanes. Like you were trying to navigate your way through that process. Where are you now? Where do you think either the what or the how on what we do about I-5 and Northward? Uh, I think we do congestion pricing on the both the Columbia and 205 crossings. We do it right away. We see uh, how much of the 60 to 80,000 commuter traffic from Clark County uh, joins some carpools, gets on buses, um, just makes fewer trips into the city, um, unrelated to getting to work and for shopping you know, instead of three trips for shopping in a weekend, if they get to one, which is what a lot of tolls and congestion pricing, the kind of behavior that results from that, it's a win-win. But I want to see before we, uh, 
you know, widen, and I oppose the widening of I-5 until we do these things. I oppose it um, because it's just morphed into this, like, gigantic, you know, awful monstrosity of a project in terms of three-quarters of a billion dollars. And there are other examples around the country where they built a new bridge, told it, and uh, the the amount of congestion went down so far. It, they didn't need to do it. it. It questioned where they needed to do it. So I think the smart thing to do, which is the Trump administration will allow tolls, they say. Uh, the chair of the House Transportation Committee doesn't like tolls. I used to work for him, Peter DeFazio. So I'd like to change his mind and congestion price tolls across these bridges, see what happens, and uh, we'll be collecting money that we can put into um, low, you know, if you got an Oregon Trail card, you automatically pay a lower toll. If you get, if you're on the city's low-income uh, water and sewer rates because you qualified, you automatically get a lower toll. I think we can deal with the the, the uh, equity and fairness around this for low-income families. Um, but there are plenty of people that move to Washington County for the financial benefits and then drive back into our city and gum up our city during peak times when we need access to those freeways. And we're a region, so I support acting like a region. But in this particular case, we need to get fewer people driving alone during peak times across the rivers. And I will tell you, speaking as a hypocrite myself, I know that if there were, if I had to pay some fee, I know there would be times, just not criticizing anybody else, just criticizing myself. I know there are times I'd say, okay, this time I could maybe like get a, one of those bikey town bikes. Maybe this is the time I get a lime scooter. You know, maybe this time I'll walk or not do the trip. I, I just know that I would do that sometimes. And if I'm going to, that's true for me, I can't be the only and one. And if you, and, and if you look at the travel pattern where you've got a percentage of, not an insignificant percentage of cars, uh, trips, commuter trips starting in the north of Clark County and have to go all the way through down to Washington County. Um, that's where the sort of workplace carpool uh, programs that are, you know, they have them on the East Coast more robustly than we have them here. Um, that's the win-win. They don't have to drive. There are fewer cars on the road. Uh, the more that we can have those commuter vans electric, you get the benefits. One other policy question, at least I got to ask you, and I don't want to ask it in the exact same way that I think you probably asked, had to answer it a bunch of times. It's about neighborhood associations and about uh, and about district-based elections and either having a strong mayor or an unelected king, you know, city manager. The uh, And rather than just asking you the binary question of where you land, mm-hmm. it seems to me there's some important competing interests. The interests that are pushing hard for not only dumping or, you know, sort of softening the power of neighborhood associations have overlap with the folks who are wanting to uh, move away from uh, a citywide empowered city councilors, city commissioners who actually get to run bureaus. Their argument essentially is, yeah, we need a system that's racist and we need a less balkanized city council. We need to break down the silos. And so that's why we need a city manager to run the whole thing. So you don't have somebody just trumpeting for, I want water and somebody else saying, no, I want roads or I want max lines. So there's a concern of the siloization and sort of the the racist risk. If you have a, a, a white city with significant racist traditions, then how do you pull away from that if the whole of the city runs, you know, controls every seat? On the other hand is democracy, is how do you make sure that there is still a higher degree of accountability so that if, I mean, I know that if there is not an elected official that runs stuff, 
Will there be that? And I was one of them. I was one of the people thumping the city about like people dying in 82nd Avenue and, and east of there. Not because I ever thought that's what I was going to be doing, but because that's where I ended up living and where I ended up serving. And I was people yelling at me about it. As I and, paid it forward. And you were right. And the and so and I knew that when I talked to a city councilor, that that person actually could do something about some of that stuff. Mm-hmm. Now that it wasn't one person who could do something about everything, but I could meet a city councilor who could do who had real power, who could do it, and then we're accountable. And it also meant East Portland as an example. It meant that five city councilors had to care about it, mm-hmm. or at least had a reason to care about it. They should be there. They had voters there. There were mm-hmm. constituents in that area who could go visit all five of them and say, "No, no, go down the hall. That's not our ward. Go to the ward that's yours." How do if you are leaning towards saying, "Yeah, let's let's abide by the city club recommendations." and move towards district-based elections and, you know, an unelected city manager. Uh, what do we do about the silos and what do we do to make sure we're not just uh, continuing racist oppression in governance? And if you are on the side of keeping the same uh, system, or excuse me, excuse me, and if you're on the other side, then how do you imagine us preserving democracy? You know what I'm saying? Because I don't think it's enough of an answer, basically, to just have a binary result on this. We've got to, to me, have all those things. We've got to address racism in our city and in representation. We've got to make sure that we run well, and we got to make sure there's real accountability in decisions that are made by the city. How do we do it? Well, a couple of thoughts. One, uh, when I was on the city council both as a commissioner and then as mayor, I asked the city government, I'm sorry, I asked the city attorney, I'm like, this has to be a violation of the Voting Rights Act or federal laws that uh, beyond the Voting Rights Act that require, you know, uh, uh, equal vote, equal representation, the at-large districts. I thought yeah. that's what they used to do in the South, you know, to keep people of color from from voting. And because we had such a small uh, at that time, such a small percentage of non-white residents, the city attorney said, no, you can't drag yourself into court, which is, you know, my idea to sort of break through the logjam of what do we do? Um, so uh, I absolutely support districts. Um, one, I think it's an important discussion. I think um, a more representative government is important. I think more representative uh, advice that we get for the city. And I'll give you a concrete example of what I would do. Um, and uh, neighborhood associations, you know, have to continue to evolve. Um, but the incumbent in this race, it absolutely blew up. And now the whole decision-making process is three years out. And Portland can't wait three years for um, more inclusive representation. So my idea, other cities do it around the world, is we create commissions um, one for black African-Americans, one for uh, Latino Hispanics, one for uh, Native Americans, one for um, Asian Americans. And within that, those commissions or committees, you get to bring around the table the diversity within those communities because Asians, Americans. Not all one thing. Yeah, not all one thing. And probably one for women. Um, they should have standing as a neighborhood association when it comes to land use, that, that they can decide to take a project or a zoning change and opine on it anywhere in the city, just like neighborhood associations can still do um, while we're waiting these three years. 
But also, they have the opportunity then to, though, bring us in if I'm elected to the city council. And what am I doing with my bureaus in terms of, you know, equal employment and EEO representative employees? And, and are they making their way up uh, the ladder of, of, of management to management? And what are we doing on minority contracting? Um, I think that the city council could put this together in a matter of you could start taking applications in a matter of weeks. And if after three years, you know, a better holistic change is out there, great. But in the meantime, you know, having input on, let's say, the budget, you know, what are we up to? Almost $6 billion, you know, and the amount of non-white input into that process, which is not just where the money spends, as you know, it's the blueprint of what actually the city is going to do over the next year, not what we might say it will do, but largely what the city will do. And where's the money going? Um, you know, I started geo equity on budgeting and that actually they've turned it into even more useful things since then. But like these commissions can get going right now. And I think it's incredibly important. The other thing, though, is we need to bring the community along. We need to bring the community along, the private sector, and recognizing the benefits of having more diverse boards and directors. And so I would, you know, in three years announce that we will raise the business license fee. Um, but you won't have to pay it as a, as a, for, for businesses above a certain size. Start with that. So just sort of figure it out with the bigger businesses. Um, and, and for businesses over a certain size, you know, you won't pay the, the higher fee if you have a rep representational board. And let's say it includes a worker and it's got to have adequate female representation and people of color on that board. Work out the details later, but you yeah, get but you the idea. you get a little idea. bit of a break if you diversify your leadership team. Right. And if you're not, and it's disclosed whether you're meeting that requirement or not, give them two or three years. You know, the standard board of directors seat is you know, one to three years. And they report, and they reported whether they're meeting or not, whether they're paying the penalty or not. The money we, we get from the penalty money, we can then put into, you know, more equity programs in the city. We can't order corporations to do that, but we can use our business license tax. I would ask the county and their business license fee to do the same because we we city government as a, as a municipal entity need to change but we need to be thinking externally of how we incent um, more inclusion for, for historically disenfranchised folks, how we have more of that in every aspect of the city. So it's, it's built on part of what California is doing, that they have the power to require it. But we as a city have the power to incent it. So I think I heard you say there are uh, that you're in favor of you're roughly in favor of the city club recommendation. Uh, oh, you're not necessarily in favor. So in terms of the the type of government, I mean the details matter. The details matter <laughs> a lot, and I I really hope there'll be a robust process with adequate resources going into it to to research and beyond districts, but the type of government beyond right, districts. Because so here, here's the challenge. It seems to me that if there are districts, there ain't no way. Well, I guess that's not necessarily true. It seems very challenging to move to districts and not have strong city councilors, right? Like if if all you do is represent, you know, we need to talk Laurelhurst, that through. That and then then and you you're really the want, transportation, yeah, exactly, right? And you There'll be suspicions on you, but we need to we need to walk through those different scenarios as a community and think about it. In terms of, I I did not support the the proposal that put forward by Tom Potter that went down with seventy five percent no because I called it an imperial mayor. 
yeah. where I was a too strong a mayor. I also worry about a too strong czar, yeah. a manager that is not accountable, adequately accountable to the to the elected officials. And and the details of how that's all put together, as you might suspect, it really matters. And so really thinking that through. Having said that, you know, under, when when I worked for Vera, I put together the chief administrative officer positions that that really focused on having the internal services of the city, especially run by professionals. So it's not that I I'm open to a lot of different permutations. Another permutation is that I don't support, but has been put on the table, is you have to run from a specific place in the city. You're still elected citywide. Yeah which is kind of how the Portland Public School District does it. But then you're ensuring that you're getting Wait, at you least— You said you are open to that or you do not support it? I'm. It's not—I would rather have districts, yeah. but others have put it on the table, and that might fit better with if you continue the commission former government. Oh, yeah, which, that's interesting, because then you could potentially <clears throat> still have strong commissioners, and, and because I'm, then everybody's still got to vote for you. I'm not wedded to the commission former government. Yeah. But when you sit down with the charter folks that are— expert on the timeline, it's three or four years before we see any change in the best case scenario. So who you elect for these positions still matters a lot because they will be working under the commission former government for the next four years. And it's, it's a, it's a former government that I can make work and get stuff done. When people have asked you, why didn't you run for mayor? Why didn't you run against Ted Wheeler? What's the best answer you've given? I just didn't want to, I'm at a place in my life where I wanted to focus. I wanted to focus on this issue of houselessness and affordable housing. That's it, a good answer. It's a, What's it's, the worst answer you've given? <laughs> uh, that, is, I, that is the best and the worst answer <laughs> I've given. How's that? What didn't I ask you that I should have? Uh, how's Peter doing? He's doing great. <laughs> He's the campaign manager um, uh, for a, a ballot measure that's trying to get on the ballot that would bring a lot more uh, funding to uh, low-cost uh, substance abuse recovery. What are you most excited about? about the Because I, I know so many. I mean, there's so much stuff to get through because there's a lot of stuff to talk about. I'm what are you most excited about? I'm excited to get working again on these problems. I love it. Um, and I and. And I, w one of the things I love it is my approach, which is, I think, different than the incumbent's approach, is I like to bring all the people around the table that think they hate each other and have no common cause, like on how do we get 44,000 units of housing built in the next, you know, by 28. Uh, I've had a lot of good fortune in bringing those kinds of competing groups together up front to get stuff done. And, you know, that's... These, these issues are so fraught and they're so difficult. You need all of those diverse views and a lot of expertise at the table and then just the average person's radical common sense. And that's really, you know, what I try to bring is radical common sense because this is local government. We are nonpartisan for a reason. You know, we work on the problems, solutions on the problems. We work on achieving uh, the opportunities without, um, without the partisan labels. Sam Adams, former mayor, candidate for city council. Thank you for taking this time. Thank you for having this conversation. Thanks to, your, thanks to you for your commitment to the city. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it.